0: Shem HaShem Naasevena Tzliyach, Shur Baruch Hashem, back at the Aventura Center, uh, Rest Center, Baruch Hashem, for our weekly Musar Shior. Baruch Hashem, we've had a lot of progress over this uh, last week with uh, some of the uh, research we did on on the wigs, almost, uh, that came out with a stick, it was a lecture over here, we did a... uh, lecture here, I think it was actually one of the first ones, one or second one that we did here, Amos was here and uh, uh, we did it, talked about wigs and uh, the new insight that we talked about in regards to wigs of how it's um, the machloket between the Ashkenazi poskim and the Sephardi poskim, which is really not really Ashkenazi-Sephardi, it's really more of five or six Ashkenazi, uh, maybe one Sephardi and everyone else meaning the five or six are saying it's allowed and everyone else over 90 other poskim, are saying it's not allowed to wear the, uh, the wigs. But even the five or six that uh, said it's allowed did not say it's allowed to wear today's wigs with the exception of one guy that I don't think is mentally stable uh, and he's not a posek. Uh, it's not necessarily an insult on him, it's just that he wrote a book in 1980, uh, 1980 1981, saying that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was the Mashiach while he was still alive. And uh, even the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself, Tzadik said don't publish this book. So I don't. Th- I think you know people like that that just point to their rabbi, as much as they like their rabbi, point to their rabbi and say he's the Mashiach, I don't think they're mentally uh, stable. Uh, as much as I would like to believe that either Rav Mizrahi or Ephraim a Mashiach it's not. I would not be mentally stable to teach you, if I were to say such a thing. Because only Hashem knows who the Mashiach is, and by the time Mashiach comes, Mashiach comes. Well, no, there's no guessing. So uh, to uh, to just say we somebody's a Mashiach because we like him, uh, is is one degree of uh, craziness. And uh, to write a book about it, I think is takes it to another level. But anyway, uh, the whole argument between. Uh, wigs allowed, not allowed um, has been going on for many years. We had a little bit of a different perspective about it, uh, actually rehashing a 14-year-old issue about the fact that the problem with wigs is not regarding the Alakha of it's allowed or not allowed because of modesty, it's allowed or not allowed because you're Ashkenazi or Sephardi. The problem with wigs is because it's Abu Dazara. And the reason why is because after serious research we did, uh, we confirmed that it's virtually impossible to find a wig that does not have a source of Avodah Zarah, to find a wig that does not have a source that came from the temples in India. There are only a couple of places you can get wigs, unless you get it directly from a person, which I don't see anyone walking around with a bald head these days saying, oh, I just sold my hair. But let's say you found somebody. Okay, so you found one person. Uh, The other 99.9% of the population that are getting wigs and hair extensions and so on are getting it from stores. And those stores are getting it from factories. There are two major factories. 99% of the wigs are coming from India, who then sends it for processing in China, who then sends it to processing somewhere in Europe, either France or um, Italy uh, or one of the other European countries. So that's why when it gets to the United States or anywhere else, it says made in Italy, made in England, made in France, but the last time anyone visited France, Italy, or, uh, or any of these places, you don't see Italian people walking around with bald heads. That's because it's not made in Italy. It just says made in Italy because the last part of the processing was in Italy, but the actual hair itself, the foundation of the hair, comes from India. Uh, also the hair that says made in Brazil. From the few people that I know that are from Brazil, they told me that they most likely will allow themselves to starve to death before they shave their head to sell it. They'll allow themselves to starve to death before they hurt their own beauty. like, Ooh, why would they sell their hair? To me, they, they, they thought I was crazy when I asked them. So anyway, uh, that's the main source. The other 0.9%, if it's even that much, comes from... Um, Russian jails there are apparently is a uh, organization somewhere in Russia that goes to the women jails and forces the women uh, to uh, shave their heads uh, so it's either it's coming from aluzara or it's coming from unethical behavior either way it's obviously not allowed or it's coming from dead people uh, so we did this research Bo hashem and uh this organization in uh, New Jersey in New York actually uh, wrote a whole paper about it using all of our reach in Boch Hashem over the last week. It became uh, very, uh, a very big hit. Uh, Rabbi Lazer Brody from, uh, Brody from uh, the Breslov Center uh, also included in his uh, blog and uh, said himself that even though he's not one to speak about the topic... He doesn't go against one side or the other, even though his wife wears a kisui rosh with a mitpachat, with a scarf. He says, listen, I understand that there's Ashkenazi customs and so on, so I don't even talk about it. But now it's a different problem. Now it has nothing to do with minagim. Now it has to do with avodazara. Now it has to do with, you know, idol worship. Uh, And with idol worship, we learned from the Torah that if if anything was ever used for idol worship, a Jew is never allowed to enjoy it in any way, shape, or form. So that's a different problem. That has nothing to do with customs. That has to do with Torah. So anyway, this is one of the big developments that we've had. We've had a few others. But uh, little by little, people are connecting to these shiurim uh, because they're saying that uh, this is a little different than what the traditional talk that they're hearing. It's a little harder to hear because every shiur leaves you with a task to do. At the end of every shoe you're supposed to have at least uh, one or two things on your to-do list. I need to fix this. I need to fix that. If you didn't leave the shoe with at least a couple of things you need to fix, then I failed. So if you left the shoe feeling good about yourself and everything is perfect, next time you should give the shoe. Because I know I leave the shoe and I know I have to fix something. So if you have nothing to fix, then I have to fix it. Then you give the shoe next week. So as long as we're on the same page and we'll have, you know, we'll trying to fix ourselves, then Bezad Hashem, we're going in the right direction. So now we're going to continue this series, and we also talk a, bit, a little bit about this week's parasha, Parashat Koach. This parashah happens to be one of my favorites. It's uh, a lot of balagan that happens again. If you remember, over the last couple of weeks, reading the parasha, there's been havoc and with, uh, with Am Yisrael, where Hashem got to a point already two weeks in a row, two parashot in a row, where he decided that he wanted to destroy Am Yisrael. He wanted to destroy them. He said to Moshe Rabbeinu, get out of the way. Let me destroy them start something new with you. And Moshe Rabbeinu fought for us. We complained about the man. We complain about Hashem, we complain about the land, we complain about Moshe Rabbeinu. We have, O Hashem, as Jews, we have a surplus of complaints. This didn't start now. It was already in Mount Sinai. So in this parasha, we took it to a new level. In this parasha, we took it to a level that unfortunately still exists today. We took it to a level where we said, you know what, the Torah that you gave us, we don't like it the way you gave us, we want to change a few things. We don't like kosher, so we're going to say kosher and non-kosher is okay. We don't like that homosexuality is not allowed, so we're going to say Hashem didn't mean it. We don't like that Hashem hates immodesty, so we're going to say, no, that was back in those days, it's not relevant anymore. Change the rules. And that's exactly what Koach wanted to do. He wanted to change the rules. But why? I mean, we've always wanted to change the rules. There's been a shame since the beginning of time. What's different about Koach? Why did Koach benefit in such a way that he actually has a whole parashah named after him? The reason why is because Koach wanted to change the Torah in the name of the Torah. By using the Torah, against itself by picking and choosing bits of truth and smearing them with a bunch of lies and this is how you'll see every major lie throughout history that actually had legs that actually stuck around for a while had to have a certain element of truth in it one of the biggest if not the biggest lie in history is the whole concept of Christianity Christianity, anyone that actually investigates it, doesn't need to have an IQ of 300 to realize it's fake man-made religion. I'm not saying this because I'm Jewish. I'm saying it because I investigated it. And anyone that investigated it themselves, investigated the sources of where it came from, what it actually said, what actually happened. who's, Who's against who? Compared their own documents against themselves easily arrives at the same conclusion. But how is it that over 2 billion people are practicing Christianity without a second thought? Whether they're Catholics or one of the many denominations of Christianity, how is it possible that so many are following this giant lie where they say that some fool died 2,000 years ago and somehow that makes him God? In reality, if you look at the historical documents, we know that the only source, the only document that actually spoke of him, if it's the same person, Bechlal, at the time he was even alive, was the Torah, was the Gemara. The Oral Torah. Other than that, no other document ever discussed Jesus. No newspaper discussed him, no journalist discussed him, no book ever talked about him, nothing. Now, if somebody thinks somebody is a Mashiach or a god or anything, even if he's just a popular baseball player, somebody writes about him. A little kid draws him or something in kindergarten. They make something, nothing. No document was ever written about him for 300 years after he died, meaning that all of the people that wrote the document never knew him. He was dead already. But yet, billions of people came and left this world believing that this is true. Reason? The foundation is true. The foundation of Christianity is true. What's the foundation? foundation is it comes from the Torah. They say that the New Testament is two books. It's the Old Testament, a.k.a. Torah, with an addition. So yes, we all know that the Torah is true. They say it's also true. They say there's an addition. We say there wasn't an addition. The Torah was written once, that's it, the end. So the fact that the larger part of the New Testament, meaning the Torah has about 300 and 4,800 letters in comparison to the New Testament of approximately 100,000. So you see that out of 400,000, 75% is true. Who's going to check the other 25%? Who's going to check even after you see the first parasha is true? You see that Hashem created the world. You don't need to be a genius to believe that. Muslims, Jews, Christians all believe that God created the world. So everybody agrees. Therefore, see, we all have the same thing. So no one is going to care enough to investigate, unless they really want to know. Unless they really want to connect to the real God. And not just to connect to some culture or some uh, uh, type of uh, belief system that allows them to continue behaving the way they are without changing. They don't want to change. They don't want a belief system that helps them change. They want something that confirms their existing behavior. And this is exactly what's happening today with many people, Jews or Gentiles, where when you tell them the truth and you tell them words of Musar, you tell them that Hashem expects more from them, they fight you like you wrote it. And The reason why is they say listen my rabbi that I've been going to for the last 10 years never told me that my skirt has to pass my knees Even after I sit down The rabbi that I talk to talk to and I've been going to for the last 20 years never told me that I'm not allowed to drive on Shabbat the rabbi that I go to Never told me that I'm not allowed to even step inside a reform shul a conservative shul or a Kabbalah Center not allowed Why because they teach kfirah. They teach things that are against the Torah and they're considered Minim. Minim means people that are actively trying to distance Am Yisrael from Hashem. And someone like that, we've had shu'rim about that, we're not even allowed within six feet of them, according to Hashem. Six feet. So, obviously, we're not allowed to learn from them. The rabbi never told me this. Why you say so? Maybe you're wrong. Well, we'll compare. We'll compare his sources versus mine. My sources are Torah. I don't know what sources he uses. Because there's no source for what he says. So now, when people hear some of this stuff, and they're not really looking for the truth, what are they looking for? They're looking for things that are more convenient to hear because they justify their existing behavior. I don't want to hear things that are going to tell me to change because I don't want to change. I'm comfortable waking up at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't want anyone to tell me that I need to wake up early in the morning. I'm comfortable wearing almost no clothes because it's hot. I'm comfortable doing this, I'm comfortable doing that. People like that, unfortunately you can't help. You can't help somebody who doesn't want to help themselves. But the good news is that even though sometimes we don't want to help ourselves, Our neshama, our Jewish neshama, yearns for more. Our Jewish neshama is not willing to give up. Our Jewish neshama is going to say, okay, maybe you don't want to change, but I know what's going on up there. I'm going to force you to change. I'm going to start begging Hashem to force you to change. Every night that we go to sleep, a large part of our neshama goes upstairs. This is why we say, chane, uh, um, vekayam, uh, uh, That you brought back my soul. Every day we wake up in the morning. We say, thank you Hashem for bringing back my soul. Why? Where did it go? It went upstairs. What did it do upstairs? What did it do in heaven? It told the Bedin of Shemaim, What did you do today? Oh, I stole a little bit today. Not a lot. Yesterday I stole more. Oh, I uh, cursed today. Yesterday I cursed less. Oh, I did this. You tell them all the good and bad things you did. So the neshama says, when I go up there, I'm going to tell on you. And I'm going to ask them to force you to fix yourself. Because I know what happens if you don't. So when you get tikunim, you get different tests in your life, whether it's a flat tire or chas Shalom More, it's not because it's bad for you. It's good for you. It's trying to fix you. Hashem is trying to talk to you. And since you're not Moshe Rabbeinu, He's not going to talk to you out of a burning uh, bush. He's going to talk to you through tikkunim. He's going to give you a flat tire so you look upstairs at Hashem. You're right, I just don't know why. Oh, maybe he's trying to save me from a car accident. Or maybe the customer I'm about to meet was going to cheat me. Or maybe the house I was supposed to buy really has a rotten foundation. I don't know anything about houses. I wouldn't know if it has a rotten foundation or not. So I'm, I'm going to miss the appointment. Somebody else is going to come in, offer even more money, and the guy is not going to consider me even part of the equation. And he's going to sell the house. I'm going to feel bad about it. But in reality, Hashem is saving me. And there's countless reasons that Hashem puts into his accounting of why he does every single thing he does to you but sometimes those things hurt if you connect to him and you willing to improve yourself it becomes easier to understand why easier to understand why is he doing those things cuz there's no way that he brought you into this world to suffer if you want you to suffer just leave you in gainum it's much better built over there for for suffering More structured for that. There's only suffering there. No one has a good time. There's no vacation. There's nothing. It's pure suffering over there. Pure punishment. Six chambers end at some point, sometimes a few hundred years, sometimes a few thousand years, sometimes a few million years. One chamber doesn't end. So if you want this for us to suffer, you just leave us there. He didn't bring you here to suffer. He brought you here to work. The problem is that we don't want to work. We think that we came here for a vacation. So Hashem has to remind us once in a while. So this Mishnah is a reminder that this is exactly what's happening. Rabido Sa ben Arkinas, Omer, shel Shacharit, Veyain shel Ve Sichate Yeladim, ve'yishivat Batik Nesiot, Shelame Haaretz, Mutsi'in et adam mina'ulam. Rabbi Dosa ben Alkinas used to say: late morning sleep, midday wine, children's chatter, and sitting at gatherings in the synagogues of the ignorant remove a man from the world. On a s- simple, literal translation, Seems pretty harsh. Seems like Rabbi have Abdel Akinaz is a little bit tough on us here. Okay, so I overslept. Big deal. Okay, so I had a glass of wine at 12 o'clock in the afternoon after I woke up. Okay, so I hung out with my kids till 4. So what? So my few of my friends, I go to the Knesset after 4 o'clock. I go to the Knesset, I hang out with the guys. We talk about sports. Maybe watch a little bit. They put TV in the back of the Beknesset, maybe. So what? You're telling me that this is going to take me out of the world? This is going to take me out of this world and Ulam It's a little strict. Khalidi. Machmir. So let's see what he is. First and foremost, as we always start when we hear the name of a new sage, is, who is he? Rabbi Dosa ben Alkinas was a colleague of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, but he was considered one of the Gdolei Atanayim. to such an extent that Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yoshua, some of the major sages you hear about in the Gemara, they were his students. So not only was he uh, Kurdish Kodashim, as far as his knowledge, he was extremely wealthy, and he lived a very long life. Meaning that he had the experience to back everything up, the experience of seeing Bet HaMikdash, the experience of seeing sages, the experience of seeing us succeed and fail. So when Rabbi Dosa ben Arkinas Who, When he speaks to Rabbi Akiva in the Gemara, he doesn't say Rabbi Akiva. He says Akiva. Akiva. Young Akiva. Why? Akiva was a student. Akiva was a student. Even though the Torah says that uh, Rabbi Rabbi Akiva arrived at the highest level of Kedusha, the 50th level of Kedusha, even higher than Moshe Rabbeinu, some say, Still, when he was here, he was considered a student. So, if he was his student, imagine who he was. So, Rabbi Dosa Ben Akinas, you would think with all of this wisdom that he has, knowing what happens above us, below us, knowing the Kabbalah, knowing the literal, knowing the secret, knowing all these different things, because his students knew it. So obviously he knew more. You'd think he'd be a little more sophisticated. Why are you talking to me about oversleeping? Or drinking wine? There's nothing else in the world to talk about. Can't tell me about the secrets of what happens after we die. Can't tell me the secrets of what does an angel look like? Is it like the movies where they have a couple of wings? Is it two little kids like they have? Like what is it? Can't tell me some cool stuff, telling about oversleeping, drinking wine. So first and foremost, we see that Rabbi Dosa, he's telling you something that has to be, like we've learned in the last few weeks, part of your foundation. Because without a solid foundation, it doesn't matter how many stories you build, it will eventually collapse. If the second floor, third floor, fifth floor, 50th floor, 100th floor, 500th floor, they could all have the greatest stones in existence. They could all have windows and bathrooms and offices and million-dollar uh, you know, fountains. If they're all standing on rotten foundation, it will eventually collapse. So we've already learned over the last few weeks that first and foremost, before anything else, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Almighty, fear of Hashem. If you have no fear of Hashem, you have to question whether you believe in Hashem. Because the Hashem of the Torah, He's not our friend, He's a little scary. He's great, He's amazing, He loves us, He wants good for us. But if we read a few parashat in the Torah, especially this one, parashat korach of what happens when someone is the enemy of Hashem, it's not so nice. The end of korach and his friends was not exactly a fairy tale. It was not exactly like smurfs. It didn't end like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It says that korach got warnings. When he first went against Moshe Rabbeinu, he got the backings of the Gedolei Adol. So he didn't come by himself. Koach was not only rich. Before he became a Rasha, he was considered a tzaddik. He knew a ton of Torah. So he was the richest man of the land. Until this day, many Jews use the expression Ashir Kekorach, rich like Koach. Because no one had as much money as Korach. They say that all of Amisrael left Egypt wealthy, because we found a third of the treasure that Yosef Tadik um, hid. But Korach by himself found also a third. So all of Amisrael had one third, and Korach had one third. So he had as much as the rest of the nation. Everyone had a camel carrying their treasures, Korach had 70 camels to carry the keys to his safes. Just the keys to all of his safes needed 70 camels. That's how much money he had. If Bill Gates was alive in his day, maybe he would hold one of his keys. So he had money. He knew a lot of Torah. Came from a good family, same family as Moshe Rabbeinu, the Levi family. What could go wrong? He hears that Moshe announced that Hashem said that the deal that he's had with the firstborn is void. Until now, the firstborn would be like the Kohanim. But now that we got the Torah, that deal is a void because the, the, uh, the firstborn weren't good leaders, as we see from the last couple of weeks. Hashem punished the leaders because they didn't rebuke the people. When we complained about man a couple of weeks ago, it says that Hashem burned all the leaders. Why did he burn all the leaders? Why did he burn all the rabbis? Why didn't he burn the people that complained about man? He said, the people, they don't know better. The leaders know. And if the leaders are not going to rebuke the people and tell them the truth, what do I need them for? So he killed all of them. A week later, last week, he sent the 12 biggest leaders to Canaan, to Israel. Go check the land. 10 out of the 12 came back with a bad report. Two were Sadikim. These are ten. They used to be tzaddikim. They said bad things. If you read the Midrash of how Hashem killed them, it's very scary. Their tongue connected to their belly, horrible, awful death. That was very, very slow and torturous. These were leaders again. Here we see Korach, He's bringing 250 of the Gdole Adol. 250 Stipe Lagoon. Rabovadia. Yashivs. 250 of them. How did he get them to go on his side? Well, he gave them all staka that's it. But they're all rich. They didn't need a Even though he had more money, they didn't need a How did he buy them off? Koach knew how to use the Torah against the Torah. To serve his agenda, Korach said, "Look, this Moshe Rabbeinu—he's fooling all of us. The fact that he's a leader, not leader, fine. Let him be a leader. But now he's taking it too far. Now he's giving the best jobs to his family. So until now, all of you leaders are all firstborn. You're all firstborn." you all leaders, you all you all Tzadikim, you all prophets, you all had jobs, good jobs. Now he's saying, Hashem's firing you. He's going to make his brother, Awana Cohen, and his sons, take all of your jobs. And they're not even firstborns. So the Ibn Ezra says, that he convinced them by telling them, listen, Moshe is changing the rules. His rules don't make any sense. Hashem probably tells him something, and since we don't hear every conversation, he's probably changing it. So they asked him, how? How is he changing it? He's like, look, I came to him and I told him, listen, you gave us this mitzvah called mezuzah. Mezuzah. This is a mitzvah that until this day has a lot of success. Even people that don't keep mitzvah have mezuzah in their house. But I told him, listen, you have this little mezuzah. This mezuzah has a couple of paragraphs in it that you say. You put it in a mezuzah. You just make sure that the letters don't touch each other. And you put it on the door. Onkelos, the convert, taught us in the gemara, azara, that we should kiss it. We should kiss the mezuzah. To show Hashem that we like it. Not because we have to. But Onkelos, the convert, the righteous convert, he loved the mitzvot to such an extent that they put it in the Gemara. So now, mezuzah has a few paragraphs in the Torah. That's why we kiss it. But I told them, listen, because I'm rich, I filled up my house full of Sifre Torah, not just what the mezuzah has, the entire Torah, but not just one Sefer Torah like they have a few in the Baruch Hashem in every closet in, in the shuls. I have the entire house from floor to ceilings full of Sifre Torah. Full. We don't have furniture, we just have Sifre Torah. Do I still need a mezuzah? Why? Why do I need a mezuzah? Your mezuzah has a couple of paragraphs. It's a little tiny paragraphs. I have a whole Sifre Torah and I have the whole house full of Sifre Torah. I still need a mezuzah? Logically, it makes sense. That's the secret of Arashah. Always makes sense logically. The Torah is not supposed to be logical. The Torah is supposed to be divine. Divine is only logical to something divine. There's only one thing that's divine. Hashem, that's it. Human logic and divine logic are not the same. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. Hashem says, I don't think like you. You think whether you want to wake up or not, I don't even go to sleep. You think whether you want to eat this food or that food, he goes, I don't eat. You think whether you want to get married at this age or that, get married. This is not things that are relevant to me. You think about things that have no connection to me whatsoever. So Korach is trying to use human logic and he's telling people to follow him because of it. And unfortunately, there was apparently these 250 Gdole Adol weren't really the stipler or the Ravavadyas. They were more of the modern orthodox slash reform of today. And they decided that, oh, you know what? Maybe we should use human logic. Maybe it does make sense that if you have a sefer Torah in the house, you don't need a mezuzah, because it makes sense. We should do it. Moshe Rabenu says, "This is one mitzvah. This is a different mitzvah. One mitzvah doesn't cancel out another mitzvah. You can have five million sefer Torah. It has nothing to do with a mezuzah. Mezuzah is a different mitzvah. Just because it makes sense doesn't mean it's right." So Korach convinces people to come and follow him, go against Moshe Rabenu, And Moshe Rabenu tells him, you and your entire assembly joining together are against Hashem. So says Korach, you, the Tan Aviram, these 250 rabbis, what you're doing right now You're going against Hashem. Meaning, it's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. But he's still giving him the benefit of the doubt. He's still praying to Hashem for him so he can do tshuva. He's still trying to reason with him. He's still trying to fight for him, even in shemaim. He's not calling him a rasha. He's saying what you're doing, maybe you're trying to do good. Maybe there's something good. Maybe you mean well even though the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you mean well. It's nice. But you're going against Hashem. I understand that the conservatives and the reform want to accept everyone. But by saying, the head of the conservative movement announced, I think, today or yesterday, that now the conservative rabbis are going to not only accept into marriage, into their keilot, Jews and non-Jews getting married together, but they, their rabbis, so-called rabbis, are actually going to officiate the chuppah. Their rabbis are going to officiate a Jew and a non-Jew getting married. And the, the reason why the so-called conservative rabbi said, we're going to do this, is because we don't want to lose the Jews saying they're going to marry Goim. You already lost them. They're gone. That's the point. To not intermarry, that's how you keep them. No, 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 but we don't want to lose them. But you don't have them anymore. Because if a Jew marries a non-Jew, if the woman is a non-Jew, the kids are not Jewish. If the woman is Jewish, yes, the kids are logically Jewish, but they're problematic. It's not exactly so simple. The reform, Hashem and Achem, someone sent me a video yesterday. I couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch it. It was like a, I think, three-minute video. Maybe I watched three seconds. Maybe. And it's not because I'm busy. It's mamash. It, I was getting angry. It's not good to be angry. According to the Gemara, someone gets angry. All, all types of gaynomes start controlling him. I was getting angry. Someone sent me a video of a reform rabbi with a talit, talit, big talit, officiating under a chupah saying Kiddushim, saying, So far so good, right? He's wearing black and white, he's wearing the so-called uniform that we have today, even though in old days we weren't even allowed to wear black, nonetheless the black and white has become the Jewish uniform these days. Everything so far looks good. He even has a beard. He even has a beard. Chupa. What's the problem? Under the Chupa are two men. Under the Chupa he's getting, he's doing a Chupa in Kiddushim for two homosexual men. Shem Even in Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have this. Sodom and Gomorrah is looking from Gainom He's like, yeah, they're worse than us. Back then we didn't even get married, we just did it. Dor Noach, the, the, the generation of Noah is looking, they're much worse than us. We did the same thing, but we didn't justify it. Or Haim HaKadosh says that at the end of times, we're going to get to the 50th level of Tumah. We're going to get to the worst possible level we've ever gotten to. In Egypt, we got to the 49th level. And Hashem had to take us out of Egypt in the last moment before we made one more sin. Because had we made one more sin, we would have entered the 50th level of tum'ah, of impurity. And according to Chazaz, once we get to the 50th level, can't take us out. Must destroy the world. Oh Chaim says, in the end of times, right before Mashiach arrives, they're going to hit 50. And Hashem's still going to save us. But only the few that do tshuvah. I think we're close at the very least. Personally, I think we reached 100. But let's say, I don't know, let's say we're at 49.999. Give the door, the generation, after I saw the video, I said we have to be at 50. Mashiach is around the corner. Has to be. So now, to finish the point, and then I'll answer the question. We are at a situation where this same type of mentality already started with Korach and his friends. But Moshe Rabbeinu said, listen, before you go too far, I'm telling you what you're doing is against Hashem. Right at the beginning of the parasha, chapter 16, verse 11. After they continue after they continue going against Hashem, after they continue going against Moshe Rabenu, after they continue going against Aaron HaKohen, and using the, these faulty arguments to justify their behavior, they're saying we want to allow intermarriage so we can save the Jews, but the conservatives. They're saying we want to allow homosexuality because we want to save the Jews. They're saying we're allowing people to drive on Shabbat to Beit Knesset because we want them to come to shul so we can save the Jews. They say we're going to allow immodesty because if we don't allow immodesty, no one's going to come to save the Jews. Everything is to save the Jews. Rav Shach, someone asked them about something like this once said "There's a seminar and there's possible imalasti with one couple they say that they're not married and they want to attend they want to attend the seminar but they're not married they want to sleep in the same room he said cancel the entire seminar and every seminar that ever is going to happen instead of allowing such a khilu Hashem to happen So to use the Torah against the Torah to say, in the name of Judaism, we're going to save the Jews by allowing this and allowing this and allowing this and allowing this and breaking this rule and that rule and that rule, breaking all of these rules to save the Jews, says there's no Jews. What are you saving? So first Moshe Rabenu is telling him, you're going against Hashem. You're going against Hashem. Stop on your tracks before you go too far. They continued. So then Moshe Rabenu says to him, And he says to all the people, He says to the people, Turn away now from near the tents of these wicked men, and do not touch anything of theirs, lest you perish because of all their sins. He says, don't even touch their money. You see, Korah had a lot of belongings, had a lot of gold, had a lot of silver, had a lot of diamonds, had a lot of everything. He says, "Don't even if he, if he gave you anything, give it back. Don't touch even anything that belongs to him. He's so wicked, it'll taint you. It'll ruin you. Stay away from him. And we see that moments later, after Ami Slay listens to Moshe Rabbeinu, those that listened were saved. And Hashem opened up the ground and swallowed Korach, his entire family, except his kids that did Tshuva. And the 250 G'dolei Adol, 250 Rabbis, Reform Rabbis, 250 of them, he opened the ground and swallowed them. And it says it is a place until this day, Chazal says it's a place until this day in the desert somewhere that you can still hear Koach screaming. Because it says here, In chapter 16, verse 33, it says, they and all theirs and all that was theirs descended alive to Sheol. Sheol is another name for Gehenom. The earth covered them over, and they were lost among the congregation. So, for anyone who says, "Oh, I don't remember ever seeing the word Gehenom in the Torah," it says it many times. Just called something else, called Sheol or some other words. And it says in this parasha twice. You see, this doesn't sound so politically correct. This doesn't sound so nice. This sounds like a serious God. Not like the Chabad God. Not like the Reform God. Not like the conservative God. Sounds like serious God. That if you go against him, punishes you. And when I am, anytime, as you obviously know, anytime I mention Chabad, it's not all of Chabad, it's the Chabads that are fake, that are not the real Chabad. There's Chabad that's real, that's Tzadikim, and there's Chabad that's fake. To tell people you can drive on Shabbat to come to the Biknisset, just give Tzadikah and everything's okay. People like that, they call themselves whatever they want. They're just desecrating the name of the organization and the rabbis that started it, the Witz Tzadikim. So, here we see a very serious God. Rabbi Dosa ben Arkinas is trying to teach us about this very serious God. He says this very serious God, a.k.a. Hashem, first, you want to make sure that you're not on His bad side. First, stop sinning. First, build a good foundation. Foundation of Yirat Shamaim. Foundation of learning Torah on a regular basis. Foundation of staying away from danger. If you're going to work in a nuclear plant, you need to know how to behave in certain parts of the plant. Certain parts of the plant, you can eat your lunch. Other parts of the plant, you have to put multiple suits to protect yourself. The radiation and so on. Know how to behave at different parts. Know what to stay away from. So Abidasa Ben Arkinaz is saying: there's a few things, much more important at this stage, for you to know, than the secrets of what happens in the next world. Much more important than to know the secrets of what happens when you learn the secrets. Much more important than knowing about shadim or all these things that people are attracted to. Good fortunes if you do this or if you do that, much more important than that. It's basic things that are gonna keep you away from trouble. And what are they? Because first and foremost, don't oversleep. Why do you care about how much I sleep? What do you care about what I sleep? You you sleep your share. I'll sleep my share. I went to sleep at four o'clock in the morning. So I want to sleep till 12. I want to sleep at 6 a.m. I want to sleep till 2. You want to sleep till 8. I want to sleep till 2. What do you care? He says, Rabbi Ben Benarkinaz, Shishacharit, oversleeping, this will make you sin first thing in the morning by missing Kriyat Shema. Shulchan Aruch, Chaim 580 and 89 talks about the prescribed time for reading the Shema Israel in the morning. This is for men because women are not obligated at mitzvot that are uh, pertaining to specific timing. But for men, they have to read the Kriyat Shema at a certain time in the morning. And according to the Gemara, Bachot, the earlier the better. There's a whole argument of what's the earliest you're allowed to do it. There's also even Minagim, Ariza, Ravovadia, and so on, of times that you're allowed to do tefillin versus times you read Kriyat Shema. But nonetheless, the point is, everyone agrees, you must read Kriyat Shema in the morning. But not just Kriyat Shema Yishma Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad and go back to sleep. No, not that. Kriyat Shema, lay pray, talk to God. It's your morning meeting with the boss. If you had a job and the boss said, Listen, every morning I'm going to give you a raise. What did you make yesterday? $100. Okay, so today I'm going to give you $110. Tomorrow, 111 The next day, 112 The next day, 113 And so on and so forth. But every day I'm going to give you a raise. It's a great job. Eventually you'll be a millionaire. So if there's only one responsibility that you have. What's the responsibility? I want to have a morning meeting with you. I want to meet with you every day. Now, anyone that's not a fool knows that even if he didn't give you the raise, but you wanted to keep the job, you still show up to the meeting. If he's telling him I'm going to give you a raise, and on top of it, you have to give the meeting, why not? This is exactly what Hashem is telling you. Every day, I'm going to give you a raise every day I'm going to give you benefits and rewards for the few words you tell me. You say, Shema Yisrael, I'm going to give you something. You say, Hashem Elokeinu, I'm going to give you something else. You say, Hashem Echad, I'm going to give you more. And so on and so forth, for every single word that you say that connects to my Torah, I'm going to give you a reward. And you can't even quantify how much reward you get for just saying any of the mitzvot, any of the brachot. It's huge. Chazal says that The smallest mitzvah, the reward that we get for the smallest mitzvah, whatever the smallest mitzvah is, is more valuable than all of the good that the entire world has ever gotten from the beginning of time until the end of time, combined. For the smallest mitzvah. So we can't even quantify such a thing. So Hashem says, I'm going to give you a raise for doing it. I need you to show up to this morning meeting. So this meeting is very important. So If you don't show up to the meeting once, okay. Not the end of the world. Twice, it's already not good. If you're not showing up to the morning meeting on a regular basis because you're watching YouTube at 4 o'clock in the morning, it's no good. What if you were watching Shul Torah? at 4 o'clock in the morning. A lot of people will tell me that I can't wake up in the morning to go to B'Knesset because I was watching your shiur at 3 o'clock in the morning. So watch it at 1. So watch it at 12. So watch it at 8. Watch it at 6. You have 24 hours. Why do you have to watch it at 3 o'clock in the morning? You can't use the Torah to make sins. You can't be Korach. You can't say, no, no, I'm watching Shu'a Torah at 4 o'clock in the morning and that's the reason why I'm sinning first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning, I'm not doing Krat First thing in the morning, I'm not doing Tefillin. I do Tefillin at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Does it say in the Torah, do Tefillin at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? Even though you're allowed to do it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Is that where it says to do it? No. It says you have to do it first thing in the morning. doesn't say at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So, Rabidosa Ben Al-Kinah is saying if you're starting in your day with such behavior, you're already putting yourself in a bad situation. Before I go to my next point, you had a question before. You had a question? You want to ask a question?
1: Yeah, you, want to ask you. you said that a lot of people uh, are basically with conservative
0: reform. Ken. Oh, I my. not all. I
1: mean, although there's been a lot more people going into religion, especially uh, people that are non religious, okay. uh, as opposed to uh, Cause leaving. Right now, that a lot of young people are completely off the trail, and about 80-90% people are going back into religion. Okay.
0: Okay, so what's the question?
1: So my question is, how come uh, the the Orthodox don't get together with the Reform and Conservative and form some kind of uh, understanding? So
0: because yes. there there is an understanding. There's an understanding. that's called the Torah. Right. The Torah is not is not a rule book. That's a, a um you know, it's a one size fits all meaning that you can just decide to keep. Three rules, I'll keep another six, almost another four, you got it, we're done. It's either you keep the whole thing or you don't keep, what you're keeping is worthless. Meaning, no one keeps every single rule because not every rule is applicable to every single person. There's certain rules that are only applicable to koanim, there's certain rules that are only applicable to women, there's certain rules that are only applicable to men, and so on. But the rules that are applicable to you, you must keep. There's no such thing as you are dismissed from this rule because, that's eh, it's too much for you. There's no such thing. When Hashem says in Parashat Bechukotai, If you go with my laws, he doesn't say if you go with some of my laws, or the laws that you like, or the laws that are convenient for you, depending on what year it is, if it's 2017, or it's 1017. He just says if you go with all of my laws. And the same thing he says every single time, every time he mentions the laws of the Torah, it says all of my laws. It repeats all of my laws every time. It never says some of my laws, ever. It says all of my laws constantly. So there is an agreement. It's called a Torah. We received this agreement a little over 3,300 years ago. The problem is that for an agreement to work, both sides need to agree that this agreement is valid. So you can call it Orthodox, you can call it Haredi, you can call it Jewish, whatever you want to call it. One side says, yes, the Torah we got from Mount Sinai, it's valid. It's from God. When someone says the Torah is divine, that means it's from God. If it's from God, that means it's eternal. It never changes. Doesn't matter what year. Doesn't matter if it's convenient. Doesn't matter if you like it. Doesn't matter if you agree with it. It means not, none of the human acceptance is irrelevant. Once it's determined to be divine, that means it's eternal. It never changes. Which means we have to change. Not the Torah. So now, when one side says, yes, this Torah is from God, we have to keep it. We have to do our best to change ourselves to keep it. The other side, on the other hand, if it's reform, it's saying, no, it's just a history book. It's not real. It's not really from God. Conservative, on the other hand, says, yeah, part of it is real. Part of it's not real. And according to the Gemara, the Sanhedrin, the Shukhan Aruch, the Rambam, and pretty much every Posek that ever talked about the issue, anyone that says one word of the Torah, one word, not the entire Torah, not half the Torah, one word of the Torah is not divine, and Luchelik He has no share of the world to come, he has no share of Hashem is no connection to God whatsoever. Why? Because he just said that the one thing that Hashem gave us is not real. So when the other side of the agreement says your agreement is not valid, there's no agreement. So we'd love to welcome everyone as long as they agree to follow what it says. But when you change the law and you say that no, when God wrote that homosexuality is not allowed, you're saying he he didn't mean it. But this one conservative rabbi wrote an article about a year ago and it was one of the parashot, one of the uh, parts of the Torah talk that talks about the laws and uh, it says that homosexuality is not allowed. It's considered disgusting in the eyes of Hashem. And this conservative rabbi wrote, no, I don't think that Hashem really meant it. That would be mean. No, no, this is a year ago, before Dwek. Before Dweck... Uh, Team. this is a conservative Rabbi Dweck is probably closer to reform but he calls himself orthodox um, this other guy actually said that Hashem didn't mean it he didn't mean it so the point is, is that when you change the Torah you change it you're treating it like it's a history book with electives of what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe So now, this is a non-starter, is what we call it. In the business world, there are certain things that are not starters. You say you want to sell the business? Great. You say you want a million dollars for the business? Great. You say that your business sells apples? Great. I say, I don't want to pay you a million bucks, and I want to pay you ten dollars. That's a non-starter. That means that we have no deal. We're not on the same page. There's no negotiation. You don't negotiate when you're that far apart. If I said 500,000, you said a million, we have something to work with here. We can meet somewhere in the middle. But if I say $10, you say a million, that's a non-starter. There's no negotiation. We're in different worlds. So... When you say the Torah is divine and the other guy says it's not, it's a non-starter. It ruins everything.
1: But with conservative, uh, there's more connection. I uh, similar they're basically out there. Right. But with conservatives, there's a lot more. Yeah,
0: there's a lot more connection as far as they like to read the Torah, they just don't like to follow it. So, uh, the problem is that, the, the, the problem is that, yes, if the Torah was a philosophy, Uh, book, then yeah, they would be right on the money. Uh, The Christians also like the Torah. They just don't like to read it. And they don't like to follow it. So again, it's not a matter of creating war. You have to understand in the Gemara it says In a place that there's desecration of Hashem's name meaning desecration of His Torah desecration of His name itself there's no consideration for Kavod even for a rabbi even for the leader, let alone for the followers. And the reason why is because, as a Jew, you have to have a priority list. And every Jew, technically, is supposed to have the same exact priority list. First, number one, God. Everything else after. God's before your wife, God's before your husband, God's before your kids, God's before your uh, friends, God's before your job, God's before everything. Then everything else. If your priority list looks something like that, you're on the right track. But if you like something more than God, you have something to work on. You have to fix something. In the beginning, some people take offense to this, like, no, come on, I can't really tell my wife that I love God more than her. I say, well, if she loves you, she should tell you you should love God more than her. You have a better chance of getting to Gan Eden. It's not, just because you love something doesn't mean you don't love something else but it has a priority list. So our priority list is to follow what God says. Why? Because if we follow what He says, we have a better chance of not only getting to a better place in the next world, but getting to a better place in this world and taking everyone that's next to us with us. If we change, then we're not following the instructions. Then all bets are off. So now Rabbi Dosa Ben Alkinas is telling us it starts with the beginning of your day. It starts with what you think is a priority. If you think that God is a priority, you live that way. You live what you think. You're not one of these people that says one thing and does something else. As the Prophet says, Hashem says that they respected me with their lips, but not with their actions. They respected me with words. They said, They said Hashem, Be'ezrat Hashem. Respected me with words, but with their actions, not so much. Kvodarav, kvodarav, kvodarav. When it came to stakat, three dollars. Thank you. I'll buy Kit Kat with it for my kid. What do I do with three dollars? Sometimes you have people like this. They say, oh, they give you like they write things, they say things, all the greatest things in the world. But then when it comes to actual action fulfillment, not so much. Sometimes you have marriage couples, you know, you have marriage problems. The foundation of the problem is that. The husband says, I love you, I love you, I love you, but he also says it to another woman. So both of me loves. Just that both don't know about each other. Sometimes you have a woman saying to her husband, I love you, I love you, I love you, but she's constantly putting pressure on him to work three jobs because she needs to have a new car every month. She needs to have 18 dresses. She needs to have a shoe every day. She puts pressure on him to work overtime. That's not love. The purpose of love is to bring the best out of each other. If you're not going to bring the best out of each other, don't love me. Don't do anything for me. Don't even say it because your love is costing me too much. So now Hashem says, they say they love me. They say they love me with their words, with their mouths. But their actions, not so much. Because I want the love has to be here. So Shlomo Amelech says, if you want to succeed in life, you have to make sure you don't put yourself into a trap. What's the trap? It says the way you start your day. Where you start your day. Even if you don't have a job that requires you to wake up at 6 o'clock or 5.30 in the morning like I needed to wake up in Wall Street. Even if you don't have any appointments early in the morning, you must start your day early. You have to go to Beknesset, you have to pray, you have to learn, you have to get stuff going. Why? Shlomo Melech says... Translation, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to recline, and your poverty will come like a traveler and you're lacking like an armed man. He says, you're going to get a little comfortable in life, you got a few bucks in the bank, you made a few dollars in the stock market, real estate, so you want to sleep in. You want to wake up at 10. you go to sleep late because you're watching YouTube. You're watching Torah anytime. You're watching, I don't know, whatever you're watching. You're up late, so you want to wake up at 10. He says, okay, I'm just letting you know. This is from the wisest man that ever lived. And he says, a little sleep, a little slumber. You take your time. You don't wake up like a normal person that starts a day. You want to oversleep a little bit, it's going to cause a little slumber. It's going to cause you to become lazy. Nine o'clock in the morning, it's going to turn into 9.30. 9.30 is going to turn into 10. Eventually, 10.30. Eventually, maybe 11 or 12. Eventually, you're just gonna you're going to wing it every day. You're not going to have a schedule. You're going to be very, very comfortable. You're going to recline. And poverty will come like a traveler. So poverty's is going to come. You don't expect it. But eventually, when the stock market is not working your way, when the real estate market's not hot, when the employees don't feel like working from home anymore, they want to see their boss, Things are not going to work as efficient as they are. It's going to take adjustment for you. You can't adjust overnight. By the time you adjust, you're already going to go broke. First and foremost, you have to understand, you have to start your day early. And he says it in the verse before, this is verse 10, chapter uh, 6, verse uh, 10. In verse 6 he says, Lech lanemala atzel He says, go to the ant, you lazy person, and learn from its ways. Become wise. Last time, we gave a shiur. Actually, today, also, I saw an ant. But he didn't give a shiur. But Shlomo Amel says we have to learn from the ant. What do you have to learn from the ant? What do you have something to learn from the ant? He says, the ant, average, they say, lives anywhere from six months to a year. But during the first day of its life—I don't know who did this analysis, but someone told me this is the, this is true—during the first day of its life, it collects all of the food it's ever going to need during the first day. But you never see the ant go to sleep. You never see the ant go to Cancun on vacation, take a break, lay down hang out with the guys, have a couple of beers, watch the game, never see that. Every day the ant goes to work. Every day the ant works as if it's saving for tomorrow, and for tomorrow, and for tomorrow, but it's not going to be tomorrow for that much longer. Every day it's collecting six months' worth of food. He says that's where you learn ambition from. Every day you go collect diamonds, mitzvot, even though you don't know how long you have. Maybe you have six months, maybe you have 60 years. Who knows? But be like an ant. Learn from her, be chacham. Be be wise. But if you're going to sleep, you're going to wake up at 12 o'clock in the afternoon every day, you're already starting your day in a bad way. This is actually mentioned in Proverbs twice, in chapter 6 and in chapter 24. So as we continue, he says that if you already started oversleeping, now you've become lazy. Boredom leads to sin. How does it lead to sin? We have nothing to do. We have to create something. And we already learned from uh, Rambam. and He says, one of the main ways that leads you to make sex crimes, whether it's wasting seed or going with uh, people that you're not allowed to be with, Having even these desires is as a result of boredom. Having an empty mind. You have an empty mind, you're just thinking about baseball, basketball, stock market, all things like the, things of this world. This, this is an empty mind. Even though you may know the salary cap for every single team in the Major League Baseball, in NFL, and in the NBA, this is not going to occupy your mind to make it a full mind. This is an empty mind. A mind that's full is a mind that's full of Torah. And the reason why is because the Torah keeps you thinking. Keeps you trying to figure out how the system works. What are the secrets to the world? How do I make myself better? How do I use this rule to make this better? How do I use this rule to make that better? How do I use these tools? Salary caps are just going to make you a jealous person. You're going to live in denial. You're going to live with hopes that one day you're going to have a house next to LeBron James. You're not going to have a home next to LeBron James. He's not going to want to live next to you. You want to live in a house that you can't afford. And you thinking that you're going to live next to LeBron James and he's even going to look at you is going to make you live in fantasy for the rest of your life. And you're going to ruin your life. This is the same thing with people that go on Facebook a lot. They see other people's pictures and everyone's life looks fantastic. Because the pictures that people put online... Uh, pictures of vacation, of good things. No one pokes, puts the uh, pictures of uh, uh, the fight they just had. No one puts the picture of them getting fired. Oh, this is me. Yeah, you see me in the background? I got fired in that picture. No one puts that picture. No one puts the picture of the kids crying and driving you crazy at 3 o'clock in the morning. No one puts that picture. Everyone puts the picture of the kids wearing a costume and they look like two little angels. No one puts the picture that you have to pick up the remains of the dog inside the house in the living room. Everyone puts the picture of the dog jumping like he's like Superman in the field. Not you cursing the dog out and saying, I can't believe I have this dog living in my house. Get this dog out. No one puts that picture. So people see other people's picture and they live vicariously through other people's lives momentarily. It makes themselves feel good for a little bit that someone's having fun out there. But then they look at their own life and they say, my life is not like this. He's on vacation. I'm working. He's having fun. I have a upside down smile all the time. I'm miserable. He's happy. I'm fat. He's skinny. I'm this. He's that. And you start comparing yourself to everybody on the internet. They're all happier than you. You want to commit suicide. You want to get divorced. So this type of behavior leads to empty minds. This is empty. This is going to lead to disaster. This is going to lead to sin. This is the reason why people end up ruining their lives by going on the internet and going on to all these uh, horrendous websites because when you become miserable, you need some type of, or at least your Yitzhak tells you, you need some type of relief. As a man... Every man knows how to do that once he gets to puberty. And he ruins his soul that way. And he starts wasting seed. And little by little he becomes addicted to it. Little by little he ruins his life. Both this world and the next world. Because he doesn't realize that the main reason of why he's not getting Parnassah is because he wastes seed. Because Hashem gives Shefa to each person. When a man... Is wasting his seed. He's, in essence, distributing his shefa somewhere else. So all the wealth and good and happiness and great things that Hashem wants to give you, you're throwing it out. So now, this starts with living a life where you have no schedule. You're getting yourself to a point where you're bored. You're getting yourself to a point where you're lazy. And Rabbi Dosa says, then you're going to think, you know what, i got to fix myself. Let me at least least look the part. Look like I'm successful. You ever see these, I don't know know if this has always been the case, but it seems like it's a disease in this generation where these young nobodies, they have nothing in their life. Like They have no actual job usually, and even if they have a job, they're not actually successful at it, but they act like they are. So they go to these very expensive restaurants and they sit there and they drink wine like they're connoisseurs. You know, they shake the wine like they know what the difference between a $7 wine and a $70 wine is. They shake the wine and they sit with one leg over the other and they start talking about baseball and basketball, nothing actual sophisticated. You see these people before? I used to have some of these people work for me. These guys, Mamash, like... They weren't winners. Let's let's call it that way. They weren't winners. I, I knew because I, I wrote their paychecks. I knew how much money they were making. And I knew that I had to lend each one of them money every month because they didn't make enough money to pay their own bills. But they would take breaks, lunch breaks, and they would go to lunch somewhere in Wall Street or somewhere in Manhattan, and they would sit there with leg over leg, like as if they just, they just you know made a hundred thousand this month. The guy can't pay rent, I have to pay for his insurance bill. But he's having lunch with his friends like he, you know, he's enjoying the sun. What are you enjoying? What are you enjoying exactly? This is the same thing I saw another kid. I think I told you guys a story. Well, I saw this young kid, maybe 27, 28 years old, no job, no girlfriend, no wife, no kids, no nothing. Nothing going on in his life, but his mom pays his bills. And he's sitting there, and we're in Israel. He's on vacation. And I see him, and he tell, asks my brother, do you want wine? My brother's like, no, no, I'm okay. And he orders wine for himself. And you see him going like this with the wine. And he shakes, and my frustrated me. I don't know why it hit me the wrong way. But I see this kid, 28 years old. He has nothing going on. He's shaking the wine like a connoisseur. And I said, this is the reason why you have no job and know nothing. And Because you're, you want to look a certain part that you're not. You're acting like you are something, but you're not. So, Rabbi Dosa ben Alkinaz says, Shena shacharit leads to yain shetzoraim." Sleeping, oversleeping, all this laziness type of behavior, what's you going to do? You want to look the part. You're going to want to look like you're successful. So what are you going to do? You're going to wake up. You're going to go to the cafe. And you're going to have wine when? In the afternoon. Instead of finally starting your day, You woke up at 11. Instead of finally starting your day, what do you want? You want to have wine. You want to have, enjoy life. Because you have this mentality like you came here to enjoy life. No one says you have to be miserable, but having wine at 12 o'clock in the afternoon is not exactly conducive for a productive person. So you can have wine in the afternoon. So what do you want to do after you drink wine? What do you want to do after you eat meat? You want to go back to sleep. So you started in a negative way, you're continuing in a negative way. After that, pretending like you're something that you're not, he says the next bad thing is Sihat Ayeladim. Children's chatter. What's what do you mean children's chatter? You need to talk to your kids. You need to talk to your kids. What's the what's the problem with speaking to kids? says, yes, you need to talk to kids just enough to raise them. Just enough to educate them. Just enough to be a part of their life. Nothing more, nothing less. The um, Rav Walby said, Zechat Tzadik Vachaz said something very serious once, many times. But this one thing. He says, parents that raise their kids... Like their friends, they raise their kids and they treat their kids like they're friends with them. Don't know that they're raising little Hitlers. Eventually, those kids that you think are your friends are going to become little Hitlers. They'll be very, very difficult kids. Why? Because your child is not supposed to be your friend. He's supposed to be your child. As soon as that Abba son relationship is friend, you have a problem. As soon as the mom is going to the store with her daughter to see what they're both going to buy because they're both going to go to the movie together and they're both going to do things together because they're BFFs, you have a problem. I'm not saying you're supposed to be enemies. But the daughter needs to know that mommy is mommy. That's ima. There's a respect. There's a certain line. I don't cross. I don't talk to mommy like I talk to my friends. I don't talk to Abba Like I talk to my friends. There's a line. But if you treat your children like they're your friends, you have a serious, serious problem. But you don't know it's a problem yet. So what happens here is that when someone has this free world type of mentality where they're just careless and nonchalant behavior, they wake up when they want, They drink wine in the afternoon, they want to just live, live life as they call it. He says those are exactly the perfect candidate that's going to spend extra time talking to kids, but not extra time educating them, extra time becoming friends with them. And when you spend extra time becoming friends with them, this leads to a joking type of personality, meaning that you're not going to know when to stop being a kid. You're going to start becoming a kid yourself start joking around at inappropriate times, and this could lead to a lot of problems. So the Gemara talks about it in a few different ways, about leitzanim, about people that make jokes. Now, it does say that anyone that's going to teach Torah, it's a good idea, it's not a must or anything, it's not a lacha, but it's a good idea to sometimes start a serious shield Torah with a joke. It makes the crowd more comfortable, opens them up. I'm not very good at this. I'm not very good at jokes. Usually, I'm good at jokes and making fun of myself. But, uh, huh? Six weeks, ago, Six weeks ago was the last joke. See, I'm—he's even counting how many jokes I have. I'm not good at jokes, so I have to take uh, extra notes for jokes. But uh, as far as uh, I know, that there's a couple of people that I know that love to joke around. There's one guy that I know, and uh, he invited me to do a couple of shoeing. And after a couple of shulim, I decided that I'm never doing another shulim with this person again. And the reason why is because and I also stopped inviting him to my shulim. And the reason why is because he doesn't stop joking around. Now, as you obviously see, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a serious guy. I don't really like joking around too much. Uh, especially when Ganei did no on the line. So when someone is making a joke every five seconds, it's very annoying to me. Now, I didn't know at the time that this happened. It was already a few years ago. That... Uh, the Gemara talks about this. So Rabbi Lazar says, call a says, Whoever scuffs, whoever jokes around at appropriate times. Not someone that's just a uh, says a joke at an appropriate time, just to lighten up the mood. Someone that's jokes around, let's say, in the middle of are you talking to them about serious things. And he just makes fun of the uh, speaker. Says, ah, you look like this, or you do this, or just makes some type of jokes. Wants the attention. Wants the against, uh, t- attention of the room. It says, whoever scoffs brings on himself Isurim. Isurim is afflictions. From the verse, we learn this from a um, verse in Isaiah 28 22. So now do not scoff, lest your afflictions grow severe. This is one small thing. Another one, Rav Ketina, Ketina says, mitmaatim." says, whoever is a scuffer, whoever is a guy that jokes around a little too much, his income diminishes, he loses money. Last month he was making 100000 a month, all of a sudden it dropped to 85000 It's not because of bad luck. Because of that stupid joke you made in the middle of the Torah. The verse says in um, the prophet O'Shea, chapter 7, verse 5, God withdraws his hand from the scuffers. Those people who like to make jokes, he takes away their panasa, Tries to give them a wake-up call. Resh Lakish says, says, The guy that makes these jokes goes to Geinom. So the question is, why all these harsh things? So, well, it's serious. We learned already here. Rabbi Dosa is already serious. These people are even more serious. Okay, I just made a joke. Why am I going again? Home? Getting Isurim, getting sick, losing money. Goes even worse. Rabbi Tanhum says, Khan uh, Chinai uh, says, Whoever scoffs causes to ruin the world. It gets worse and worse in this Gemara. Rabbi Elazar ben Arkinos says, Rabbi Elazar ben Arkinos says, it's very difficult for someone that's a uh, joker. Why? It says the beginning of his punishment is afflictions, getting difficulties in his life, but the culmination is ruin, meaning eternal geenum. This is a harsh punishment for what? A joke? Come on, no, guys are a little ultra orthodox here. What's going on? So what's going on? It says, you have to know when to joke. If you're just hanging out with a few guys, you're hanging out, you're having dinner, you're having fun time, you and your wife are just talking, and you want to throw a joke, no problem. Enjoy the joke, laugh, it's good to laugh, it's healthy to laugh. It's actually even scientifically proven if you actually force yourself to smile for 20 minutes in a row, it improves your mood. Improves your mood. It's not going to take you out of depression by any stretch of the imagination, only because depression is a spiritual state of mind. It's not a physical state of mind. But it can help you. Forcing yourself to smile for 20 minutes straight will help you. But there's a time and a place for that. If you're joking with you and your wife, you and your husband... You and a couple of friends at a appropriate time, no problem, enjoy. But if it's during a meeting with the board of directors that's considering whether they're going to declare bankruptcy tomorrow or today, and you throw a joke, you're not a good guy to have on the job. If your wife just told you we don't have any food to feed the kids, And you throw a joke, you're not you're not saying it the right time. If someone Bar Minan just said I'm sick, I have they have cancer, and you threw a joke. It's not the right time to throw the joke. If someone's trying to tell you the entrance, the directions to the entrance to Gan Eden, and the directions to the entrance to Gan trying to teach you which way to go, which way not to go. You follow Torah and mitzvot, Gan You don't follow, M'shem There's only two options. There's no middle. And in the middle of him telling you, you do this, you go to Gan You do that, no good. You throw a joke, it's not the right time. Why is it not the right time? Because if we have a serious yuturah, people are into it. People get tense. People are thinking. If if it's a good, if someone's a good speaker, a good rabbi, people are already thinking to themselves while he's speaking. What can I do to fix me? Oh, that I can do. No, that I can't. That's too much for me. That I can do. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. That means tomorrow I'm gonna do that one tomorrow. He's already thinking to himself. Tomorrow I'm must start doing it. design. Tomorrow I'm gonna do the Tomorrow I'm gonna wake up early. Tomorrow he's already planning in his head. Tomorrow, he's already getting ready to fix because he's connecting to what the speaker said from what he read in the Torah. I'm gonna do this tomorrow. I'm getting into it. He's he's getting hot. He's excited. You throw a joke, it's like you threw cold water water on fire. All of a sudden he forgot about all the promises he made. All of a sudden he's too busy laughing at the joke. All of a sudden his chuva goes into the garbage, and tomorrow he goes back to waking up at twelve o'clock in the afternoon. You just cause the person to not do chuva. And by getting in the way of somebody doing chuva, you ruin the world. Because the world was created for him. For him to do chuva. The whole world. The heaven, the stars, the land the moon, everything was created for him. Now he's not perfect yet. He has to perfect himself. He has to do tshuva. So the whole world was created and will culminate when he does tshuva. You just ruined it. With your stupid joke. You just ruined the world. And you expect not to get punished. So it's it's the right time. It's the wrong time. When we start delving into things, we start realizing... Why it's such a big deal? They're not machmerim. They just understand the root of the problem. They just understand what it actually means. When you tell people, listen, Hashem gets really, really, really upset. When someone drives on Shabbat, when someone lights fire on Shabbat, when someone's a mechalel Shabbat, he gets very upset to such an extent that he removes them from the nation. And he puts his Judaism on suspension until that person does shuva. According to the Shulchan Aruch in seven places, a Shabbat is no longer considered part of Am Yisrael, it's considered 100% an idol worshiper. This is very, very tough things to hear, very tough things to say, but it says it, it says the Torah. Why is Hashem so upset? Simply said, as we've talked about many, many times, when someone keeps Shabbat, they're in essence acting as a witness to Maaseh Bereshit. They're acting as a witness that Hashem created the world, In six days and stopped creating on the seventh day. Meaning he was the first God and the last God. He created the world in six days and no one helped him. And he stopped creating. So he created Shabbat by no longer creating. Who did he do it for? For you. By you observing the Shabbat, recognizing the Shabbat, you're testifying that all that happened. By you violating the Shabbat, you're saying, Ah, maybe it happened, maybe he didn't. Going against God that way. He takes it very seriously. So when someone turns on the car on Shabbat, or smokes a cigarette on Shabbat, or plays with their phone on Shabbat, they're not realizing that in the world that they don't see, in Ulamaba, their own personal Ulamaba, as it says, um, every uh, member of Yisrael has a share of the world to come. They don't realize that their share of the world to come when they turn on the light, when they turn on the fire when they're violating Shabbat, their personalized ulama ba has an atomic bomb going off right now. They can't see it, but they will one day. So when they show up and it's in ruins, and they say, oh, what happened What is this ulama that everybody's been talking about all this time? Seven years I heard about this ulama It's like, yeah, yeah, this is it. What do you mean? It's ruins. It's disaster. Because, yeah, you did it. When? Show me. And they're going to show you a movie of what you did. So, There's no surprise. The difference between us and the sages is they knew this. They knew the root of the problem. They knew what happens. We only know what we see. We think that if we don't see something, it doesn't happen. So, the main thing that we don't understand is that the Torah of the sages is much, much more extensive than ours. We have... The written Torah, we have the old Torah, but we don't have the same extensive Torah, the same level of Torah, like, for example, this Tana. the wrote this Mishnah, Rabbi Dosa, Ben Arkinas. He was the Rabbi of Rabbi Akiva, and in his day, the Gemara, in Masechet um, Chagiga, page 14, there's an there's a argument. How much Mishnah did they have in those days? Like, how big was the Torah in those days? So Rav Papa and the, and, the, um, and the other sages argued, one of them said they had 600 parts of the Mishnah. And the other one said there were 700. 600, 700, why do you care if there were 600 or 700? Because the only thing we have left today is six. Their oral Torah was worlds of difference from ours. They had much, much more than we did. Ours is 100% valid. Ours is 100% from Mount Sinai. But it's no secret that they had much more than we did. They knew much more than we do. But yet they're still giving us the very same basic level advice. What to stay away from. Things that we can still connect to today. Don't oversleep. Don't act like you're a millionaire when you're not. Don't waste your time. Don't act like a kid. Know how to raise your kids. And last but not least, he says, Veshivat batiknes Says going to the synagogues of the ignorant. What is this synagogue? Is there a special synagogue? There's reform. there's conservative, there's orthodox, there's modern, and then there's amearetz. What is this amearetz? What is this? what is this? A special synagogue, a special sect of Judaism called uh, ignorance. This, unfortunately, this sect is amongst all of them. Every part of Judaism has some of these. If you ever went to a synagogue, and they have like, you know, these three, four, five, six, ten, sometimes more, Old men sitting in in the synagogue all day reading newspapers. That's a me'alitz. They sit in the synagogue. They sit in a mini beta does do nothing all day. That's a me'ahalitz. But each one of them thinks he's no less than the president or the secretary of defense. One guy says, "Yeah, you know what? I think Trump. He should bomb all the Arabs." The other guy says, "No, no, no. I don't think he should bomb all the Arabs. I think he should negotiate with Abu Masid. The other guy says, "No, I know Arabs. I know I grew up with the Arabs. Atomic bomb minimum." The other guy says, "No, no, the Arabs you know, it's not the same Arabs of today. The Arabs you can negotiate with them. Every one of them thinks he's a secretary of defense. What do you could tell Donald Trump? What do you can tell Donald Trump? None of them even have a job. They're all sitting in a b'kneset do nothing all day. Even worse is some b'kneset where the rabbi hosts a sport event." They have a Super Bowl party at the Bit Knesset. They tell the entire king, La, come to the Bit Knesset to watch Super Bowl, to watch football, to watch a bunch of grown men beat each other up, carrying a leather ball. You're all considered Bnei Isla. you're all considered the sons of God. You're all supposed to pretty much give this world a purpose, but you're going to come here and watch a bunch of really big people chase each other and fight over a ball, and fight over who's going to make a cooler dance once they get to the end zone. (laughs) And since many of them don't have enough of the beating each other up, they'll fight even after the uh, play is over, just to make sure the other guy got the news, to know that he's stronger than him. This is what the education we want to teach our kids. This is the education you want to teach your kids to show them that this is this is the education you want. So now, when you have a rabbi hosting a Super Bowl event in his synagogue, then you have a rabbi that became part of Amalets. He's part of them; he got infected by them, or he was always part of them. And the reason why is because if you finally got Amislet to show up to the Bet Hamidras. You don't have them hanging out drinking beers. Give them a to Torah. They finally got there. Now explain to them why they're here. Why is there even Bechlala Bet Knesset? What do we do here? What are we learning here? Yeah, but they, they, if, if I don't tell them there's going to be a Super Bowl party, then they're not going to come. So don't come. Don't help them sin. Don't help them justify their behavior thinking that it's okay to waste their time by you inviting them to a Super Bowl party or NBA playoffs or any of these sports events at the synagogue, you're not uniting them. You're enabling them. You're enabling them to continue living this life 50-50. 50% 50 Jew, 50% Goy. So again, even though it's not... A sin to spend some of your time doing sports, playing sports, especially if it's for exercise purposes. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is, is that we don't know when the line is. We go overboard. You tell a kid, yeah, listen, you can watch a little bit of sports. Next thing you know, the kid knows the salary cap of every single team in the NBA. And then he knows who this guy got married to, who this guy got divorced. The next thing you know, he knows the entire thing by heart, but you ask him one page of Gemara, do you know it by heart? He says, I don't even know what the name of the Gemara is. Little by little, he wants to be like them. He wants to play like them. He wants to look like them. He wants to act like them. How do I know this? I was one of them. I was the secular kid that played football. I remember I was a kid, and I grew up in a great house, great parents, but you know I came here, we played football, and my dad came to my coach one time, and he said to my coach, why did my kid become so aggressive? I was maybe 14, 15 years old. Because why did my kid become so aggressive all of a sudden? He's always angry, he's always this, he's always that. He oh yeah, that happens with football. Steve Peretzman was the name of the coach, nice guy. He was doing his job. He was doing his job. My dad was like, yeah, but why is my kid always angry? Why is he always like aggressive? He goes, yeah, that's what happens. There's so much testosterone at this age and we end up creating even more as a result of all the exercising and lifting weights and playing and lifting and beating each other up and pretty much saying it's okay to be violent. To admire it to be violent. Not even okay. But what's going to happen. You have some extra left over after a practice. You're not always going to use it up. So when you tell people, listen, let's let's do this, let's watch this behavior, let's act like this, let's look like this, it's no wonder we have many people that go to yeshiva in their early years but end up leaving not only the yeshiva system, end up leaving Judaism altogether. And the reason is, is because the leaders failed and continue to fail by telling people it's okay to be a goy. It's not okay to be a goy. You're a Jew, act like a Jew. So when you have a Bit Knesset, and everyone is acting like they're running the government, this one is telling that we should attack, this one says we should like this one, the other one says we should uh, raise taxes, the other one says we should lower taxes, the other one talks about the economy, each one of them is a is an expert in something else. This is not a Bit Knesset. This is not a Bit Knesset. This is a Moshev this is just a place of jokers. You going there and hanging out with them, thinking you're doing a mitzvah because you're inside a bit knesset. You're not doing a mitzvah. You want a proof? You go to the first tailing. You have 150 tailim. The first teiling, the first psalm. David HaMelech says, "Hashem, you can attest to the fact that I never sat amongst jokers." Now, David HaMelech can't lie. He's talking to God. Hashem, you can testify you never hung out with a bunch of jokers. Why? Because I know you hate it. So when someone is spending all of his time living such a life, it's very, very easy to understand how they can get far away from home. There was one time a, um, a barrel of wine that was discovered somewhere in Israel. They're in the city of uh, David over there. Uh, A big archaeological find. They found a barrel of wine. There was still wine in it. And the story goes that this went to auction and some extremely wealthy person that likes wine bought the wine. It was a little barrel. A little barrel. And after he paid uh, apparently millions of dollars for this little barrel of wine... In celebration, he took the wine, he started shaking it in the air. And he won this wine that's 3,000-year-old wine. Best wine. You know, wine's for the connoisseurs of the world. The older it gets, the better it's supposed to be. That was my best joke in the last six weeks. So, he's shaking this wine, and as the story goes, the barrel falls cracks, and the wine spills all over the floor. All the other rich guys that lost in the auction, but also wanted the wine, they are also connoisseurs, all leap on the floor and start licking the wine from the floor. Licking the wine from the floor. This is what we got to. And then, only seconds later, every single one of them spits out this wine after they realize the wine is bad. The wine went bad. wine that goes bad is disgusting. The Musar, I learned from Brother frame on this one, is that you see, sometimes, you think you have something precious. You think that because you have special tefillin, special it's the you give. Special time that you pray. Special book that you read. Whatever your thing is. You have something special. Special connection to God. That's what you invest all of your energy in. You forget the basics. You forget. Rabbi Dosa says without the basics, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to invest everything you have into this one thing. And you're going to realize when you get to Shemaim, it's just rotten wine. It's worth nothing. It's worth nothing. Like we had a few weeks ago, a couple of fake Hasidim delay Yeshua Torah by over 30 minutes because they wanted to count the Omer. They want to count the Omer in 30 minutes. It takes 30 seconds for most people. Two minutes if you're a tzaddik. Five minutes if you're a chassid. They were above and beyond all of Am Yisrael put together. 35 minutes they're counting the Omer. Delay the Shul Torah. They're going to arrive to Bedin of Shemaim, And they're going to say, that, see, it's not only rotten wine, it's poison. Why is it poison? It caused one of the biggest sins in Judaism. Bitul Torah. You went against Torah. You delayed Torah. You canceled Torah. There was a half hour less of Torah in the world because of you. I heard what happens to such a thing. You don't want to know. It's worse than the game, I'm sure. The Chafetz Chaim said there was one time, there's a story, there was one time a crazy guy Named Moske. And this Moske wasn't exactly all there. At one time, they, uh, the, one of the guys in the Beit was giving a tobacco. Tobacco to a few people, chewing tobacco. And uh, Moske wanted some. He didn't want to give him, for whatever reason, he didn't want to give Moske any tobacco. So Moshe got upset, left the synagogue, traveled to the city three days on foot. Got some tobacco, came back three days on foot, six days, and then went to the guy. Saw him in Biknesis, He goes, "Look, I got some. I got tobacco. We had two leaves, a little tobacco, and there's uh, uh, two things of strings of tobacco in his hand." He goes, "Look, I don't need you. I got tobacco." Six days, this guy traveled for a couple little strings of tobacco. They told the Chafetz Chaim, everybody was laughing, it was such a funny thing. And they tell them the story and they're all laughing and only to see the Chafetz Chaim HaKadosh start crying hysterical. Everyone got serious, this is not a joke. The Gdol Do is crying, why is he crying? We just told him something funny to lighten up the room. He started crying hysterical and said, why are you crying? He goes, because some of us are going to arrive to bedin of Shamayim and the only thing we're going to have in our hands is a little bit of tobacco in mitzvot. We invest all of our time into the exterior. We need to look a certain part and wear a certain hat and wear a certain this and do a certain this, but in reality, inside, we're rotten. We're just a little bit of tobacco in our hands. And the reason for that. Is because the basics, we don't want anything to do with it. We don't want anything to do with the basics. What Shlomo HaMelech said, the beginning of wisdom is Yirat Shamayim. He wasn't saying something that rhymes. He was saying because that's what God said. The beginning of wisdom must have a foundation of fear of the Almighty, fear of punishment, fear of of Romimut, of his kedusha, of his majesty. Fear must be the foundation of your connection with God. Love comes later. And you say this to a generation of fools that say, hey, we don't want to be scared of God. Our Rabbi told us we're supposed to love him. Yes, once you're an expert in fearing him. So someone sent me a message that Says, no, I don't want to be afraid of God. I want to just love him. I said, then you want to believe in a different God. Because my God, he opened the entire ground to swallow Koach this week. 3,300 years ago. If he's going to open up the ground to swallow somebody just because he went against Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm scared of that guy. That's a big punishment. That's a very big punishment. But why did he punish him to such an extent? Because by punish, by going against the Torah, by going against the rabbi, he's going against the Torah. By going against the Torah, he's going against creation. He's going against the reason of why he exists. But Hazal asks a question in this week's parashah, and I had a chidush about it. And then we'll answer any questions you have. It says when Moshe Rabbeinu is talking to Korah before it all goes down, before everything gets out of hand... Moshe Rabbeinu tells Korach, then the man that, that Hashem is going to choose, he is the Holy One. It's too much for you and the offspring of Levi. Oh, offspring of Levi. He says, um, Rav lachem bene Levi. It says, It's a lot for you. It's a lot for you to handle, sons of Levi. So, Chazal asks, Wait a minute. How many levies were there as part of the congregation of Korach? We know Korach was a levy. And we know the Tanin Aviram were part of the Reuven tribe. They weren't levies. Are you saying that the 250 rabbis were levies? How could this be? The levies were the holiest tribe. They were Tamidi Chachamim. They're the ones that fought against the idol worshippers after the golden calf. Could it be that Korach got 250 levies to leave the Torah and go follow him? And the Ramban says no. The Ramban says there were not levies, but it's referring to Korach as a levy. Rabenu Chananel says, "No, no, it was levies." So we have, we have a difference of opinion between two giants. Rabenu Chananel is saying yes, there was levies. Ramban says no. It can't be both right. Or can it? What's the khidush? In a Gemara, Masechet Tzane page 99B, Amar Reis Lakish, Kol HaMelamedet Chaverot Torah Ma'ale HaAla Vakatov Keilu Asav. Resh Lakish, the famous Baal Tshuva, who is a Chavuta with Rabban Yohanan, says anyone who teaches his friend's son Torah, anyone that teaches Torah to somebody, is like he created him. But he's not telling anyone that teaches Torah that's fake Torah. Torah that's heresy Torah. Anyone that teaches Torah to someone, it's like he's considered as if he was a partner with Hashem in creation. Why? Because the person's purpose, the Jew's purpose, is to fulfill the Torah. Now unless he was born into the perfect family, and he had the perfect teachers, and everything went smooth, he's probably not Moshe Rabenu today. Most likely, he has to do tshuva the majority of Am Yisrael right now is in a position where they must do tshuva. Because if they don't, we're going to be in a worse situation than we were in Mitzrayim. So Resh Laki says, when you help somebody do tshuva by teaching them Torah, you become a partner in creation. The chidush is, is that here we see that if you help somebody get closer to Hashem, you give him a CD, you teach him something, you get him closer to the truth, you get him closer to keeping Shabbat, tarat mishpacha, modesty, everything, get him closer. You become a partner with God. The chidush here is that it's the same if you do the opposite. The reason why... Koach ve'adato is considered both levies and not levies by Rabbeinu Hananel and Ramban. Is not because there's a mechlokit. It's because they're both right. Just like anyone that helped Am Yisrael do tshuva, is partners with Hashem in creating them, Koach and anyone like him is partners with the Satan in destroying them. And that's why they're all called Bnei Levi. They called Bnei Levi because Korach was a Levi. And he destroyed them. He led them all to Geenom. So they're all considered his sons. They're all considered his sons. They're all same in the same rotten place as he is. Because his real sons, his real biological sons, were tzaddikim to the Tshuva. So it's not talking about them. We see them in Tehilim. We see them in Psalms. We see that several Psalms are actually written after them, bnei kolach. Why? Why would they write about them? Because bnei were actually tzadikim. They did tshuva in the last minute. They gave up all the money, all the wealth, all the fame, all the, everything before Hashem decreed the punishment. That to choose, are we going to stay in the will and maybe our dad's going to be gdol Adol, or are we going to go against Hashem? What are we doing? What are we doing? That to choose, they did tshuva before they knew the outcome. And that's why they were considered tzaddikim. And for all of us to understand. At some point or another, whether it's tomorrow, next week, next year, five years from now, I don't know. Whenever it happens, Mashiach is coming. We see that from just the simple signs of the disasters that are happening around the world, he has to come. Or else he's not going to have anyone to save It's not only a matter of just based on all the sources that we have, every single sign that we're supposed to have at the end of times we have. We did a few shiurim about the end of times, what's going to happen. Every sign we have, the only sign we don't have is the Mashiach himself. That's the only thing we're missing. That's it. Everything else, we even have the red cow that we haven't had in a couple of thousand years. We even have the red cow, a couple of them already. Meaning the Beit HaMikdash was built tomorrow. Hashem brings it from Shemaim. We have red cows we can purify the entire nation with. We even have a school for Kohanim. In Israel there's a school that teaches Kohanim how to act in the Beit HaMikdash, how to do korbanot. Every sign we need we have. Only thing we're missing is the Mashiach himself. But if the Mashiach came right now, We'd be in a worse situation than we were before Egypt. Before Egypt, many of Amishad didn't want to do tshuva. So Hashem killed most of them. And that's why only 20% actually left Egypt on the best estimate. Some say it was only 1% left Egypt. The rest of them Hashem killed because they didn't want to do tshuva. They didn't want to be modest, They didn't want to keep Torah. They didn't want to do mitzvot. They didn't want to learn Torah every day. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to watch baseball and football and go to the mall. They want to do tshuva, but the Torah says that when the Mashiach comes, there's no more tshuva. In Gemara, Zarah, page four, also three b, talks about there's no more conversions. There's no more tshuva. In the book of Isaiah, chapter eleven, verse three, it says, "Vericho Hashem." It says the Mashiach is going to be able to smell. Your Yirat shaman. What do you mean smell my All these days we heard that the Bashiach is going to be able to smell my sins. In different places, Chazal says he's going to be able to smell who's righteous and who's not. But the actual verse says he's going to be able to smell your Yirat shaman. And he would open his lips and he would be a mitrashah and he would kill the rasha. Two verses later, chapter 11, verse 5. So he's able to smell the irat shamaim and he's able to kill the rasha with his lips. Translation, if you have irat shamaim, you have less sins. You're much more likely that you're going to be okay. Because you have a good foundation. He's not going to have to do anything. But if he smells and there's no yirat Shemaim, there's no way in the world, there's no way in the world that you could be righteous without yirat Shemaim. It's impossible. It's impossible to be connected to the real God without fearing him first. This doesn't mean that we all have to hide in some room being scared of punishment. Being scared of Hashem means that you have to acknowledge him, do what he wants, and not just take it for granted thinking that you could just act and do whatever you please. You have before you take any step, ask yourself, what does God think? What does he think about me wearing this dress? Is it too short? Is it long enough? Is it too tight? Is it not tight? Is this hat appropriate? Is this hat not appropriate? Is this business transaction appropriate? Is this business transaction not appropriate? Is this uh, contract an honest contract or am I taking advantage of the guy? Someone asked me the other day, I found a Metro card. Found a Metro card. In New York they use Metro cards to go on to trains and buses. I said I found a Metro card and I know who it belongs to. Do I have to return it or can I just use it? It's a good question, believe it or not. Number one, it's a good question because it shows how far we are that we actually consider taking something that we know doesn't belong to us and we know who it belongs to. So it shows that our default is not so good. But even more so, it's good that we're trying. This was a student that's trying, so she at least asked. So I told her you have it depends on how much it has you know who it belongs to you have to try to give it to them if they work there obviously give it to them but if you have to go chase them down go find out where they are you don't have their phone number you don't have their address you have to go find out where they are that's going to cost you money it depends on how much is in the card if there's let's say 60 cents on the card it's going to cost you 60 dollars to get it to him obviously you don't have to return it and he's not going to look for it he's going to give up on it but if there's 150 bucks on this card then you know he's probably looking for it and you have to find a way to give it back to him. So that's Yerat That is at least a good start for Yerat Even though initially the Yetzar was saying, Can I, can this rabbi give me a way out? Can he justify my actions and tell me, hey, I just keep the MetroCard? Okay, it's just plastic. Can I fool the rabbi to tell me, hey, it's okay From you it's okay. You found the rabbi, find his keepers. Like the goyim say, find his keepers. I found it, so what if I know who it belongs to? I found it. Can I use the Torah to go against the Torah? No. But that's also your neshama talking, saying no, 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 no. Go. Ask, ask the question, but I no you get the right answer. But at least ask the question. What does God think? What does God think of my dress? What does God think of the business transaction? What does God think of what I just found? What does God think of everything that I'm doing? Once we start asking ourselves, what does God think, we already have a good start. Because then, we're not going to waste any time oversleeping, we're not going to waste any time drinking wine in the afternoon, we're not going to waste any time doing all the things that we're not supposed to be doing. And to finalize it all, we're going to finally be able to, Be'ezrat Hashem, follow what David Amelech, who was the fourth, fourth, uh, I guess, part of the Merkava, of Hashemit barach and he says in our tefillah every day there's different tailing. There's different tailing that we say like for example in a um, in the um, Amidah at the end of Amidah, we say tirdof. Tirdof We want to get to a point where after Hashem's Commandments we're pursuing How do we get to that point? David Melech is telling us here Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. I hope for you all day long. Remember your mercy, Hashem, and your kindness. And it continues. It says, uh, remember the good that I did. Not the bad things that I did. The day of judgment comes. Remember the good things. How do we get Hashem to remember the good things? Mashiach arrives right now. Right now he arrives. You have the shofar. Yawanavi says, oh, three days from now Mashiach is arriving, like the prophet said. How do we get Hashem to now? It's judgment day. Have to show up. He's going to be able to smell what we did, what we didn't do. There's no confession. He's going to know already. How do we get to a point of actually getting a good judgment, getting Hashem to look at us in a favorable way? First, you start with tir'dofet uh, mitzvot. you have to start chasing Mitzvot. Is to start treating them like the mitzvah, like they are the treasures that they really are. Wake up early in the morning. Look for the first mitzvah you can do. First mitzvah you can do is recognize Hashem. Thank you Hashem for bringing my, my soul. Next mitzvah, nitiyata daim. Next mitzvah, shayashal yitzal. Next mitzvah, pray. Next mitzvah, before you eat, say a blessing. Next mitzvah, try to find a way. If you have extra money, give tzedakah. Try to find a way to get closer to Hashem. Learn a little bit of Torah. Learn a few words. Learn a few psukim. Do something. Start chasing mitzvot. Start chasing mitzvot. Once you start chasing mitzvot, you're already showing Hashem you love Him. Not in words, but in actions. You're already showing Hashem, ah, you know what? This is something I wouldn't be doing if I woke up late. Why? Because when you wake up late, the last thing on your mind is God. The last thing on your mind when you first wake up, when you wake up late is God. All you're thinking about is how tired you are, because the more you sleep, the more tired you are. And also then you're thinking about how you're late to all the things you wanted to do, and you missed on this and you missed on that. So first and foremost, start your day with a good foundation. Next thing is start doing something with your day. Use what we learned from Chazal for your own benefit. Instead of looking at this Mishnah in a negative way, where listen, if you're gonna wake up late. You're gonna drink wine you're gonna spend time with the kids all these things that we said are uh, gonna take you out of the world how can you actually turn this around into a good thing first and foremost if you can actually wake up late make sure you only woke up late because you studied torah all night you prayed nets you prayed at six o'clock in the morning 6: 30 in the morning you late latepheenine you finished praying like a normal person you read a little bit of Torah you finished at 7 thirty eight o'clock. You go sleep for two hours, eight to ten o'clock. You go start your day. That you did a mitzvah. But if you went to sleep at six right before nets, you didn't pray, and you wake up at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's not mitzvah. Your Torah is not considered a, a good Torah. It's 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 standing on bad foundation. Next thing is, if you're going to actually have yain butzoraim, you're going to have something. If you going if you want to have wine in the afternoon, you can. Under what condition? Make it a, a party where you're finishing the shas. You just finished the entire gemara. It's a mitzvah to do a celebration, to Kiddush Hashem, to celebrate that you just finished the entire shas. All those books that sit in libraries, no one ever wants to touch on touch them. The gemara, finish the entire thing. Once you finish the entire thing, have a party. Every time you finish a masechet, you finish one tractate. Brachot, but Hashem, uh, Sunny and uh, almost both of you guys, are almost finished with it. Beret Hashem, you finish the masechet. You have a party. It doesn't have to be a party in a big hall. It's just a party. One more second, you and everybody have a drink. So that mitzvah. You want to have wine in the afternoon? You could have it in a kosher way. Next thing is Sihat yeradim. You're going to talk to kids, teach them Torah. Don't talk to them about baseball and basketball. Teach them something that's going to help them in life. And don't tell them it's okay. For them to spend their entire nights and afternoons and everything chasing things that are not what a Jew is supposed to do. Last but not least, if you're already going to be part of, unfortunately, most of the beteknesses in the world, have at least a few amea few uh, Have at least a few ignorant people that sit there and do nothing. And you, Baruch Hashem, you know a little bit of Torah. Go to the beteknesset. But instead of sitting with them and wasting your life with them, Say, hey, you know what, guys? I have a chidush for you. Korach, he actually used to be a tzaddik. Start telling him a chidush. Instead of talking about politics, Donald Trump, this Trump, that Trump, if she's a Michal Shabbat, if she's a Jew, if she's not a Jew, if there was another tzaddik, if there one's a rasha, if he's good All these things that people talk about, stop wasting your life talking about nothing. Tell these people, listen, there's a chidush. Korach used to be a tzaddik. Used to be gdolado, used to be amazing. But you decided to change the rules. Everything went to the garbage because of one thing. So now you've turned this moshav Litseem into Torah.